It's Tuesday. You know what that means. It's time for the best and brightest moment of your week. It's time for that show you love and that show that you seek. It's time for nonsense. 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 The show. The best damn show you know! The following program contains scenes and language of a frank and explicit nature. Viewer discretion is advised. Under 17, not admitted without parent. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Nonsense the Show, episode 249! We're almost to the end of season two! I'm feeling good, I hope you are. Started off with Jefferson Starship. This is Jane. gentlemen that was jefferson starship with the smash hit classic song jane um that's one i think we've played before on the show but uh, you're gonna hear a couple of those this episode and the next because i'm feeling a little bit nostalgic about the glories of season two let me go ahead and set the stage before we dive into the meat of this episode ladies and gentlemen my name is captain nick i am the third count of buena vista the finest and the one true the last remaining pirate captain on the shores of california i am the host i am the ringmaster i am the mastermind behind this circus of the absurd and the insane and the hysterical and the interesting this is nonsense the show it's the best damn show you know and i'm grateful that you keep on coming back week after week after week this is episode 249 that's 49 episodes i've put out for you 
since last year when we brought back Nonsense the Show. That's one a week, at least an hour, if not an hour and a half's worth of high-quality entertainment for you. My loyal listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, a special thank you to uh, the entire gang that's supporting me over on Patreon.com backslash Nonsense the Show. That is the very best place you as the listener can support me as a content creator for the hard work I put in every single week creating this show for you. You throw me a dollar per episode, it goes a long way. You throw me $5 per episode, it goes even further. You can do more than that. You can do less than that. Whatever makes you comfortable, every single dollar helps. I appreciate those of you that choose to support me uh, in the most important way you can with your ears and with your wallet. What do we have in store for the show tonight, huh? What do I have planned for the penultimate episode of season two of Nonsense the Show? Well, let's get into it the right way. I'm going to go ahead and set the tone with a little bit of background music. Here we go. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the main event. This is episode 249 of Nonsense the Show. My name is Captain Nick, and now it's time to share with you the starting lineup for this night's episode. Starting things off, I'm going to give you a spooky story in the myth and mystery segment. That's right, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to talk about the true story of that tale you heard in bathrooms at sleepovers across the land. Stand in front of a mirror, say her name three times see what happens you're gonna get the true story of the one and the only bloody mary following up we're gonna take a story from the sea the vast mysterious dangerous elusive ocean the uh well poseidon's playground itself that's right ladies and gentlemen in the sea story segment tonight i'm gonna tell you about the famous legendary ghost ship the flying dutchman following that I've got a special gift for Mill and Lee and Emily and the entire Micronations gang. I have for you one of the greatest stories about a Micronation of all time, and I promise you I'm being serious tonight. This is an actual story that I have ready. I'm going to tell you about the mark that sits on my hand right now, the flag of the great state of California. Why does it say California Republic? I'm going to tell you tonight when I tell you the story. And finally, a Micronation's tale coming to your eardrums on these airwaves. It's time for you to learn about the Bear Flag Revolt. Of course, we're going to talk about the Captain's Film Institute Film of the Week number 35. Once again, you say his names three times. Beetlejuice. 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 Entry number 35 into the Film of the Week is the one and only Michael Keaton Tim Burton classic. Beetlejuice. I'm going to ask you for some help as we head into the final episode of season two. I want to know your favorite parts. We'll talk about that later. And if we have time, maybe I'll tell you a little bit about what I've been watching. It's a star-studded lineup. It's going to be an incredible show. I hope you guys are ready. I know I sure am. All right. Let's go ahead and uh, go ahead and fade that guy out. Ooh, that music was nice. I get pumped up when I listen to that music. I want to be a play-by-play announcer. I want to do some cool shit on the airwaves. Oh, look, that's what we're doing. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for being patient seven minutes into the episode. Let's get to the meat, huh? It's time for me to tell you the very true, very spooky story of the one and only Bloody Mary. So strap in, sit down. Let's listen to a myth and mystery. 
The Bloody Mary legend is an old, old legend that you probably heard way back in primary school and that your younger siblings and family members have probably heard too. Based on many urban legends and folklore that many believe was based upon the true story of the witch, Mary Worth. The Bloody Mary story may seem somewhat innocent until you learn quite how gruesome and violent the tale is. It's got it all. Witches, kidnappings, burning a witch at the stake, and even, that's right ladies and gentlemen, just a little dose of magic. Take a ride with us through the spooky world of Mary Worth and learn just why and where the legend came from. And why you still might not want to say Bloody Mary three times in a mirror. Just think back to your childhood sleepovers. The lights would go down, the house would get quiet, you would stay up late trying to stay quiet and not wake up the parents. You would tell stories of ghosts, spooky stories, and maybe even watching horror movies that are completely inappropriate for your age. Were you that piping voice who said, Who is Bloody Mary? Hopefully not because you likely would have been suckered into this bit of the legend, which says that if you hold a lit candle in a darkened room with a mirror, any darkened room will do, although it's usually the bathroom, and say, Bloody Mary, Bloody Mary, Bloody Mary, into that mirror, you'll be greeted with the rather startling image of Mary's reflection in the mirror behind you. Different retellings of the story offer different versions of the tale, with some imagining Bloody Mary quite literally dripping in blood when she appears behind you and others telling of her dragging you away if you turn around to look at her in person, as well as slightly more macabre tales that talk of violent murders and blood pouring from taps. Is Bloody Mary real, you may ask? Well, some people think so, based on the story of the witch Mary Worth. It's fair to say that the Bloody Mary history is long and, well, extremely bloodied. Many people have already believed that Mary was a witch simply because she lived in the forest in an extremely small cabin and was known around the local village for selling tinctures and herbal remedies. Locals were very wary of her and didn't want to get too close, fearful that she'd curse them or their animals. And those who chose to use her remedies were sometimes even, uh, even shunned by the very religious for partaking in what was known then and now as Wicca. Soon, though, Small girls started to go missing. The people in the village looked everywhere they could think of for them, but they could just not think of where they could be. A few brave folk even ventured toward Bloody Mary's cabin to search for the girls there. Although the witch denied all knowledge of the girls' disappearances, the families remained suspicious. Her usually elderly and haggard appearance had drastically changed, and she was starting to appear more feminine and more youthful. The villagers were suspicious, but there was little they could do. They had no proof. The Bloody Mary story continues with the tale of the miller's daughter. One night, the poor girl was captivated by a mysterious noise that only she could hear. Whilst her mom was sitting up in bed treating a very bad toothache using, as luck would have it, an herbal tincture that she'd bought from Mary. The miller's wife was very frightened and shouted for her husband to come and help follow her daughter. They were shouting at the daughter for her to come back, but to no avail, as it was almost as though she was following an unspoken and unseen force into the woods. Getting the help of a few townsfolk, the miller noticed that there was a light at the edge of the woods. When they got closer, they noticed again that Mary Worth was standing in a clearing next to a huge oak tree. 
According to legend, she was holding a wand, pointing it towards the miller's home, and was almost glowing with an unnatural light. And the miller's daughter was headed straight toward that light. Once the farmers noticed just what Maryworth was doing, they set upon her with pitchforks and guns, and when she realized that everyone from the village knew what she was, she broke the spell and made for the deep forest. So what happened next? Well, unfortunately, Maryworth wasn't quick enough for one farmer. Quickly loading his gun with silver, vo- silver bullets in the event that Mary ever decided to turn her attention towards his daughter, the farmer ca- uh, fired a shot and caught Mary in the hip. And thus she was caught. Kicking, thrashing, and screaming, she was tied to a stake and a bonfire was promptly built so that s- this supposed witch could be eradicated for good. As she was burning, she set a curse upon the villagers and told them that if they ever dared to utter her name in a mirror, she would be back for them. Her spirit would return to wherever they summoned her, uh, summoned her from to exact her revenge. Unfortunately for the villagers with missing children, when they got back home to the village and returned to Mary's house and did a proper search, they found what they were looking for. Rows and rows of unmarked graves. It seemed that Mary Worth had been using the blood of their children to make herself more youthful and vibrant. The Bloody Mary legend doesn't quite end there, however. The most common version of the legend states that if you chant her name three times into a mirror, you'll summon the Bloody Mary ghost. And unfortunately for you, she'll take your soul for her own, ripping your body to shreds in the process. She'll leave your soul to burn just like she was left to burn by the villagers and to top it all off, you'll be subjected to an eternity trapped in the mirror. Now, knowing what you know, are you still asking, is Bloody Mary real? I don't know about you, but I certainly don't want to be the one to test out this theory. And now, ladies and gentlemen, it's time for a musical break. This, of course, is the Monster Mash. This week's episode of the Schmoops Song. I was working in the lab late one night when my eyes beheld an eerie sight. For my monster from his slab began to rise. And suddenly, to my surprise, he did the mash. He did the monster match. The monster match. It was a graveyard smash. He did the match. It caught on in a flash. He did the match. He did the monster match. From my laboratory in the castle east to the master bedroom where the vampires feast. The ghouls all came from their humble abode to get a jolt from my electrode. They did the match. They did the monster match. The monster match. It was a graveyard smash. They did the match. It caught on in a flash. They did the match. They did the monster match. The zombies were having fun. The party had just begun. The guests included Wolfman, Dracula, and his son. Whoa. 
The scene was rocking, all were digging the sounds. Igor on chains, backed by his baying hounds. The coffin bangers were about to arrive with their vocal group, the Crypt Kicker Five. They played the match. They played the monster match. The monster match. It was a graveyard smash. They played the match. It got on in a flash. They played the match. They played the monster match. Out from his coffin, Rex's voice did ring. Seemed he was troubled by just one thing. Opened the lid and shook his fist and said, Whatever happened to my Transylvania twist? It's now the mash. It's now the monster mash. The monster mash. And it's a graveyard smash. It's now the mash. It's caught on in a flash. It's now the mash. It's now the monster mash. Now everything's cool, Drax's a part of the band, and my monster mash is the hit of the land. For you, the living, this mash was meant to. When you get to my door, tell them what is said. Then you can mash. Then you can monster mash. The monster mash. And do my graveyard smash. Then you can mash. You'll catch on in a flash. Then you can mash. Then you can monster mash. Wow, the Monster Mash. Ladies and gentlemen, that's the Halloween smash hit Monster Mash. This week's entry into the Schmoop song list. Uh, thank you, Maggie, for suggesting it. That's an excellent choice. And uh, never fear, ladies and gentlemen, we have one more Schmoop song coming for you this week. We're going to double dose on the Schmoops. Get pumped. But now, ladies and gentlemen, it's time to dip our toes back into the myth and mysteries uh, section of our show. Um, this one, of course, is a sea story. The ocean is often the subject of countless superstitions and paranormal activities. Many of these myths have been depicted in pop culture movies and even in operas. One such legend is that of the Flying Dutchman, a ghost ship notorious for being the omen of bad luck. As is the case with most myths, there are many different versions of the story, but here's what I've got. The myth originated in the 17th century and follows the story of a captain named Van der Decken, sailing across the Cape of Hope, a part of the sea infamous for its storms and terrible weather. The captain of the ship vows to make it across the Cape even if it takes him forever. Upon hearing this oath, the devil curses the entire ship along with, it, along with its crew to wander the ocean forever. The only hope for salvation for the captain and his crew is for the captain to find someone who truly loves him. However, this task is nearly impossible, since he can visit the shore only once every seven years to find that one true love. Another version of the story includes the skipper of the ship practicing satanic rituals on board. He willingly courts himself to the danger of entering the Cape in adverse weather conditions, challenging the gods. This leads to the gods getting angry at him, as they do in many old myths, and he is thus tossed into the eye of the storm and doomed to sail all the oceans forever without ever reaching his home harbor. There is also a third version of the myth, according to which one of the crewmates of the ship asked the captain to turn back from the Cape of Good Hope, but the captain killed the rebel and tossed his body into the sea. The skipper's disregard for the well-being of his crew caused the entire ship to sail the oceans for eternity. 
Legend has it that the ship is still out there in the sea and tries to interact with other travelers whenever possible. It is a green, glowing ship that suddenly appears out of nowhere and disappears just as mysteriously. It is also believed that those who encounter the vessel during their journey meet horrible misfortunes. It is said that all legends are based on facts and actual events to some extent. However, as word of mouth travels, people tend to add a layer of mystery to the real story to exaggerate its ghostliness. Similar is the case with this myth, as there have been numerous accounts of sailors and ships seeing the Flying Dutchman, the oldest of these dating back to the time the myth originated. Many people have recounted seeing it sailing around the Cape of Hope. All of these sightings happened in terrible and stormy weather. One very famous incident regarding the sighting of this ship is the one by HMS Bacanti, a British Royal Navy vessel in the year 1881. Prince George V, who was aboard, reported seeing the ship around four in the morning in the Australian waters. While the prince remained unharmed, the crewmate who first reported seeing the vessel lost his life the following day by falling from the topmast. This confirmed the suspicion regarding the spotting of the ship being ominous for witnesses. In yet another incident, a British ship nearly collided with the supposed ghost vessel on a stormy night in 1835. But as they got close and and were about to make contact, the ghost ship vanished without a trace. Again in 1939, when a group of people at Glencairn Beach in Cape Town reported seeing the haunted vessel sailing towards shore under full sail, before disappearing just as it would have run aground. A more modern sighting of the vessel was reported during World War II. According to reports, the crew of the German submarine or U-boat and the fleet of Nazi Admiral Karl Donitz saw the Flying Dutchman during a voyage east of Suez. But is there a scientific explanation for the sightings of the ghost ship and the misfortunes that are sure to follow? Well, scientists have often tried explaining the sighting of Flying Dutchman as nothing but a mirage. This means that the light and the atmospheric conditions create an illusion of a particular object at a distance, which may not be actually present there. This phenomenon can happen on deserts where it is most famously acquainted, or on land, or even at sea. And at sea, one might observe a normally floating ship to be floating above the sea instead of in it. Whether the story is true or not is another dive into history of which I have not prepared enough research to give you an educated summary. Regardless, it continues to haunt anyone crossing the Cape of Good Hope, and the air of mystery surrounding it has not died, even after centuries. And now, another musical break. A song from my DJ days back in the early 2000s. This is Around the World by ATC. With sweet, I didn't blink. I let it in my eyes. Like an exotic drink, the radio playing songs that I have never heard. I don't know what to say. Oh, not another word. Just la 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 la.
enough of that thank you atc we appreciate you as always let me uh, just go ahead and get myself situated here and we are gonna dive right on in excuse me to the very next segment of the show and ladies and gentlemen this is one that i am very very excited to be able to present to you today for multiple reasons the first of which is that as a uh, native born californian as a man who loves my home state and uh, who is especially interested in the history of it Uh, both my state and my town. I'm going to tell you the tale of an event that happened just about 200 yards from where I'm currently sitting. Maybe a little bit more, but uh, the point stands. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time for me, finally, finally, to share with you yet another entry into the Micronation series. Wait, there it is. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Yes, okay, that's enough. Thank you. Um, Mill, Lee, Emily, I know you've been waiting. I know you were anxious about this. I know you weren't even sure if I was going to do this story. And even now, I bet you think I'm going to swerve you and tell you, sorry, we're out of time. But then you look and you realize we're not even half an hour into this episode. And yet, wait a minute, he's talking about doing a Micronation story? Yeah, that's right. The payoff is finally here. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time for me to tell you the origins of the California state flag, and uh, one of the more interesting stories I've come across regarding my hometown. Ladies and gentlemen, it is now time for me, Captain Nick, to tell you, the loyal listeners of Nonsense, the show, the story of the Bear Flag Revolt. In the 1840s, even before the famed California gold rush, increasing numbers of U.S. immigrants began to arrive in what was then known as Alta California a far-flung northern outpost of Mexican government territory. Uh, 
Spurred on by books and newspaper articles touting the mild climate, fertile soil, and open land of the Pacific coast, individuals and families began to find their way across the Sierra Nevada mountains and into the Mexican-controlled territory. Unlike earlier Anglo-Americans who had settled in Alta California, the newcomers were not willing to assimilate and adopt a Hispanic lifestyle and customs. Hostility between the U.S. and Mexico was increasing due to the dispute over the Lone Star state of Texas. Most Americans expected that California would become part of the U.S. just as Texas had and considered it only a matter of time for that to happen. In the meantime, political tensions among Mexican Californians were high. California-born leaders had recently wrested control, of, uh, wrested control from governors imposed by Mexico, but were suspicious of each other. Northern factions based in Monterey and led by military commander Jose Castro were organizing against Governor Pio Pico, whose headquarters were in Los Angeles. And in the midst of this volatile situation, U.S. Army Captain John C. Fremont arrived in Alta California with a detachment of 60, 60 heavily armed men. And John C. Fremont was a little bit of a glory chaser and a little bit of a blundering fool, but his impact on the future of the state of California cannot be, uh, cannot be undermined. In January of 1846, after spending time at John Sutter's Fort on the Sacramento River, which was also then known as New Helvetia, Fremont traveled to Monterey. There, he met with U.S. Consul and, confi uh, and Confidential Agent Thomas O. Larkin, a New Englander who had settled in Alta California in the 1830s. He and Larkin discussed the hostilities over Texas and U.S. plans for Alta California. While in Monterey, Fremont informed Commander Castro that his purpose was to map a route west of the Pacific by west to the Pacific by way of the Oregon Territory. <clears throat> he then requested permission to pass the winter in California before making the journey. The Mexican authorities granted him said permission and leave to travel through the San Joaquin Valley, where there were very few Mexican settlements. In March of 1846, however, Castro discovered that Fremont and his men were in the Salinas and not the San Joaquin Valley, as promised. The commander sent orders that they were to leave immediately and proceed directly to the Oregon Territory. Rather than follow Castro's directives, though, Fremont and his men set up an encampment on nearby Gavilan Peak, which is now called Fremont Peak. They raised the American flag in the middle of Mexican territory for all to see, and a standoff ensued. Fremont himself remained in the area for a few more days before moving north to Oregon. After this incident, two months passed without, without any further incident, but on May 13th of 1846, the United States Congress passed a declaration of war against Mexico. After hearing the news, it did not take long for Fremont to return to California. Fremont knew this was coming. He was just waiting for his chance. He knew that as soon as war was declared, he could march directly into California and began attacking settlements, gaining glory, plunder, and riches for himself. By May 24th, when the captain and his men arrived in the upper Sacramento Valley, stories were circulating among, among Americans that Jose Castro wanted to attack and expel all Anglo settlers. Rumors only increased in June, uh, correction, in early June, when Commander Castro, who had set up headquarters at Santa Clara, traveled to Sonoma to obtain horses from General Mariano Guadalupe Vallejo. Castro's plan was to organize a force to defend against the American invasion of northern Alta California. He also hoped to use the horses against his rival, Governor Pio Pico, whom he expected to march north to consolidate his control over the territory. 
Vallejo provided Castro with some 170 horses, some from private individuals and others belonging to the Indians at Mission San Francisco Solano. Castro returned directly to his headquarters in Santa Clara and left a detachment to escort the the horses back. That plan went awry, however, on June 9th, when a group set off from Fremont's camp to pursue Castro's men. They surprised the Californians the next day at the rancho of Martin Murphy, an Irish immigrant. Led by a man known as Ezekiel Stuttering Zeke Merritt, they took the horses Vallejo had provided, but let Castro's men keep their own mounts. The Californians rode back to Santa Clara to alert Castro as to what had happened. In the meantime... Stuttering Zeke and his men brought the horses back to Captain Fremont's camp further south on the American River. Encouraged by their easy victory, their next step was to head towards Sonoma and the headquarters of General Mariano Guadalupe Vallejo, who was then the most powerful man north of the San Francisco Bay. The party arrived at Vallejo's home in the early morning of June 14, 1846, Although Mariano Vallejo was an experienced military man, the army barracks at Sonoma, just next door, had not been used in several years, as at the time, the Pueblo was a peaceful place. The diplomatic Vallejo welcomed some of the raiders in and courteously offered them drinks in his home. The general then assured them that he was not an enemy and was even open to an American takeover of California. The conversation went on until those standing outside became impatient and demanded Vallejo's arrest. After electing William B. Ide, a carpenter from Massachusetts, as their leader, the Americans arrested Vallejo, his brother Salvador. Oop. Pardon me, we've got a little bit of an issue. Here we go, scrolling down. Let's correct this. Please forgive me. They arrested Vallejo, his brother Salvador, and Victor Prudon, who was Vallejo's secretary, and took them to Sutter's Fort. Along the way, they stopped at Fremont's camp to receive instructions. There, Vallejo asked Fremont why they had been arrested. The captain claimed that he was not involved, but nevertheless ordered Vallejo and the others imprisoned. The men would remain as captives at New Hel- mm, The men would remain as captives at New Helvetia until August of that year. All right, sip of rum as we get to the meat of the story. It is now time to meet the Osos. On June 15th, Ide, who had remained in Sonoma with other insurgents, issued a proclamation to the citizens of Sonoma. It claimed that the Mexican government had been oppressive, tyrannical, and despotic with the immigrants and called on all people to join them in establishing a new and just government. He promised that peaceful Californians would not be disturbed and had nothing to fear. Ide's men had taken down the Mexican flag in the main plaza of the Pueblo and replaced it with a new, quickly handmade one. It bore a star, and a bear, and the words, California Republic, emboldened on it. Because of the flag and perhaps their rough appearance, Ida and his group would, become, would come to be known as the Osos, which, of course, is bears in the Spanish language. On June 17th, Jose Castro received word that Vallejo and the others were imprisoned at New Helvetia. He, sent, uh, he soon sent an irate message to John B. Montgomery, captain of the USS Portsmouth, asking for an explanation of Fremont's behavior. The Portsmouth was a troop ship that had traveled up from Monterey to the San Francisco Bay to prepare for hostilities, and Montgomery had received a similar message from General Vallejo himself. The general had informed him of his captivity and asked about Fremont's involvement in the Bear Flag affair. The captain's reply echoed Fremont's 
Both he and the army officer were neutral and unaware of the Oso's plans. In his role as, cap, uh, as commander, rather, of California's military, Castro Isser issued exhortations to the Mexican population to be ready to sacrifice themselves for the defense of liberty, the religion of our fathers, and our independence. His next step was to begin raising a force to try and attack the Osos. In order to do this, he had to reach out to his rival, Pio Pico, in the south. Castro proposed that they set aside their differences in order to fight the common enemy. On June 23rd, after several days of silence, Pico issued a proclamation. He urged all Mexican citizens to pursue the treacherous foe and punish his audacity. Pico warned them that if the U.S. took over, it would impose the horrible slavery permitted in its states. He then called on Mexicans to imitate the example of the Spartans at the Battle of Thermopylae and fight to the death. Pico then reached out to U.S. Consul Thomas Larkin, asking for an explanation of Fremont's and the Oso's behavior. Like Montgomery and Fremont before him, Larkin replied that he had no control over their behavior and protested the neutrality of the United States. On June 19th of 1846, a group of Californios captured two of the Osos whom Ida had sent to obtain gunpowder from somewhere near Santa Rosa. The Californios executed the two men and rumors soon spread among Americans that the killing had been unwarranted and brutal. Just a few days later, on June 23rd, a brief battle before, between Californios and Osos took place near Rancho Olampali, owned at the time by Camilo Yanita, a Miwok Indian friend of Vallejo's. There were one or two deaths on both sides, but each group eventually headed in the opposite direction, the Osos back to Sonoma in the north and the Californios to San Rafael in the south. On the same day, Captain Fremont, having heard that Jose Castro was preparing a force to assault the Osos, set off with 130 men, including U.S. troops, Delaware Indian scouts, and American civilians who had joined him out of patriotic duty. He had now shed any pretense of neutrality and was confident that the U.S. Navy would back any actions he took. The group arrived in Sonoma on the 25th and the next day marched towards San Rafael, where they expected to battle Jose Castro's troops. When they arrived at San Rafael on the edge of the San Francisco Bay, Castro and his men were nowhere to be found. Three full days passed with no action. However, on June 28th, Fremont's men noticed a small boat coming across the bay towards them. As the boat landed, three men got out. Francisco and Ramon de Haro, twin sons of a former alcalde of San Francisco who is sort of like a mayor, and Jose de los Reyes Berriesa, the 61-year-old owner of Rancho San Vicente, south of San Jose, whose son was the alcalde of Sonoma. The boat and its owner then turned around and headed back across the bay. As the three Californians began to walk up the shore, Fremont's men, led by frontiersman Kit Carson, shot them. Carson later alleged that Fremont told him that he had, quote, no room for prisoners. On July 1st, Fremont and his men convinced Captain William D. Phelps of the American, uh, of the American Bark Moscow to ferry them across to an old fort known as the Castillo de San Joaquin, at what is today known as Fort Point. The Spanish had built the bulwark in the 1790s, but it had been abandoned for some time. Fremont ordered the cannons made inoperable by spiking them. For Fremont, the gesture was a symbol of his willingness to aggressively pursue battle. And on July 4th, the triumphant Fremont and his men returned to Sonoma, where the Osos and their followers organized a victory celebration. 
The following day, Fremont made a public declaration of his willingness to lead the fight against his enemy, Castro, without officially offering to conquer California. He then got ready to head back to Sutter's Fort for the next phase of hostilities and to plan further action. When Fremont reached New Helvetia on July 10th, he received some uh, unsurprising news. A messenger from Sonoma informed him that Commodore John Drake Sloat, commander of the U.S. Navy Pacific Squadron, had raised the U.S. flag over Monterey on July 7th. Captain Montgomery raised the U.S. flag over Yerba Buena, San Francisco, on July 9th. By the end of July, Fremont and his men officially became the U.S. Army's California Battalion and went on to fight, this time officially, in the battle for California. So while their micronation was incredibly short-lived, at just about 14 days all said and done, the Bear Flag Revolt and the very, very short-lived California Republic, an independent nation, is a pretty fitting micronation story to end out this season of Nonsense the Show. Don't you think? (laughs) All right, ladies and gentlemen, 41 minutes into the episode. We might uh, not make it to an hour tonight, and I'm fine with that, quite frankly. I've been at work all day telling stories. My voice is uh, just a little bit tired. But before we close out this episode, we have one very important thing to work on. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time for the Captain's Film Institute. What? Yeah, Captain's Film Institute. Yep, it's going to be a fantastic film that I'll tell you all about after this, uh, just a brief segment of this song by one Harry Belafonte. This is Banana Boat, the Deo song. Work all night and I drink a rum. Stack banana till the morning come. Daylight come and me one go home. Come, Mr. Tallyman, tally me banana. Daylight come and me one go home. Come, Mr. Tallyman, tally me banana. Daylight come and me one go home. Live six foot, seven foot, eight foot bunch. Daylight come and me one go home. Six foot, seven foot, eight foot. Ladies and gentlemen, if you have seen the film I'm about to tell you about for the 35th entry into the Captain's Film Institute Film of the Week, then you will absolutely recognize none other than Day O. And that, of course... Mm, excuse me one second. Here we go. Okay, we got it. That, of course, features in one of my favorite scenes in the 1998. Correction, 1998. <laughs> Did I say 98 twice in a row? I meant 88. Words are hard. I'm a little slow. I've had some rum, and uh, that's a good thing. Sip a rum for all of you nonsense listeners. Why don't I start this part over, eh? 1988 Tim Burton directed classic starring Michael Keaton, Alec Baldwin, Gina Davis, Winona Ryder, Jeffrey Jones, and the legendary Catherine O'Hara. 
The synopsis of the film reads as such. Sadly, the otherwise happy Maitlands, Adam and Barbara, now rest in peace after a freak accident. Trapped in a strange limbo, the ghostly couple returns to the realm of the living, only to discover that the insufferable New York yuppies, Charles and Delia Dietz, are now occupying their lovingly decorated New England home. Of course, sharing their beloved house with the obnoxious invaders is out of the question. However, the Maitland's haunting skills are pathetic, to say the least. Now, under those grave circumstances, only the manic, rotten-toothed veteran exorcist Beetlejuice can rid the place of the unwanted guests. But what happens if the cure is worse than the disease? Ooh, boy. Beetlejuice is a classic film. I'm sure you've seen it before. If you haven't seen it in a while, you're going to watch it again after you listen to this. I just know it. Maggie uh, decided we were going to watch it last night, and it was a perfect choice for the Captain's Film Institute Film of the Week. Every week on the Captain's Film Institute, we talk about three very important pieces, the favorite line, the favorite scene, and the favorite character. My favorite character is probably going to be Charles Dietz. I just think he's a really funny piece of this entire puzzle. Um, All he wants to do is relax, but he's incapable of doing it. And of course, he soon gets inundated with ghosts and hauntings and all of the silliness going going along with his crazy wife, his depressed daughter, and the weird house they just bought in the middle of nowhere. My favorite line in the uh, my favorite scene rather in the movie goes back to the song we just heard. It's the Deo dinner party. During uh, a dinner party at the house, Beetlejuice uh, inhabits the bodies of all of the guests, including the Deets family. He makes them do a song and dance routine to Deo by Harry Belafonte. Highly recommend you at least YouTube that scene if you're not going to watch the whole movie. It's absolutely fucking hilarious. And I always pick a favorite line. This week, it's an interaction between Adam and Beetlejuice. Adam says, well, what are your qualifications? Beetlejuice says, ah, well, I attended Juilliard. I'm a graduate of the Harvard Business School. I travel quite extensively. I lived through the Black Plague. Mm, I lived through the Black Plague and had a pretty good time during that. I've seen The Exorcist about 167 times, and it keeps getting funnier every single time I see it. Not to mention the fact that you're talking to a dead guy. Now, what do you think? You think I'm qualified? And that's the line I chose as my favorite line in the film. <laughs> And now let's delve into some facts and things you maybe didn't know about the movie. The studio originally wanted to call the film House Ghosts. As a joke, Tim Burton suggested the name, uh, the name become Scared Sheetless and was horrified when the studio actually considered using it. <laughs> um, Michael Keaton has stated several times that this is his favorite Michael Keaton film. Of all of the incredible films he's worked on, this is his favorite. And on the note of Michael Keaton, um, one of the Captain's Film... Well, I guess the theme of the Captain's Film Institute is I always try to pick out some improvisation in the movies I watch. I'm a big fan of improvisation. I think it's a uh, an incredible skill to be able to improvise in a creative, entertaining, and hilarious way. You will be interested to know, if you have been following the Captain's Film Institute for 35 films now, that Michael Keaton ad-libbed. of his lines in this film. That's a lot of improvising, even though he's only in the film for about 14 minutes. (laughs) 
Tim Burton feared the Deo sequence wouldn't go over well, since, in his opinion, it wasn't very funny. He turned out to be wrong, though, and audiences loved it. And most people that have seen the film think of it as one of its most iconic scenes. I would happen to agree. You may not know that Beetlejuice was the first DVD ever sent out on Netflix in 1998. Uh, Some of you, uh, probably the listeners of this show are are excluded from this, but some people out there are too young to understand that Netflix wasn't always a streaming platform. In their early years, they were a DVD service. You would go onto their website, you would pick your movies based on your plan, they would send them to you, you would keep them as long as you wanted, unlike Blockbuster where you had insane late charges. Um, Netflix would let you keep it as long as you kept paying your monthly subscription. Um, Beetlejuice was the very first DVD ever sent out on that service. Back to Michael Keaton, he played the title character of Beetlejuice. In the entire movie, he only appears for about 14 and a half minutes. He shot for about two weeks and he was done, and it's an iconic character. Good for him. The visual effects budget on the film was just $1 million, which was a major factor in Tim Burton deciding to make the effects look as tacky and as B-movie as possible. And now one of my favorite pieces of the Captain's Film Institute where we delve into some of the alternative casting choices that would have been made in different circumstances. Tim Burton originally wanted Sammy Davis Jr., a favorite star of his since his childhood, to play the role of Beetlejuice. But studio executives didn't like that idea at all, and so it never happened. The casting of Lydia came down to just two actresses at the end, Winona Ryder and Alyssa Milano. With, of course, Winona Ryder a Petaluma native, ultimately landing the role. Producer John Peters thought of casting controversial comedian Sam Kinison as Beetlejuice, but Kinison's agent never told him about it, and so it never came to pass. Another person who was uh, considered for the role was Dudley Moore of Arthur fame. Highly recommend you check out the original version of Arthur if you have a moment. At one point, Tim Burton considered Arnold Schwarzenegger for the role of Beetlejuice. However, the Geffen Company felt that due to Schwarzenegger's reputation at the time as an action star, people wouldn't take it seriously. But Burton approached Schwarzenegger anyway, who uh, ended up turning it down as he was busy shooting a movie called The Running Man, which was released in 1987. Angelica Houston was originally meant to play Delia, but unfortunately she fell ill and couldn't make it to filming which left us with the incredible, hilarious, legendary Catherine O'Hara. Kirstie Alley was the first choice for the role of Barbara, but the producers of Cheers wouldn't let her out of her... Excuse me, wouldn't let her out of her contract to take the role. Also considered were Sigourney Weaver, Linda Blair, Goldie Hawn, Laura Dern, and Linda Hamilton. Some big names from that era. Juliette Lewis auditioned for the role of Lydia, as did Lori Laughlin, Diane Lane, Sarah Jessica Parker, Brooke Shields, Justine Bateman, Molly Ringwald, and Jennifer Connolly. At the end of the day, though, Lori, Diane, Sarah, Brooke, Justine, and Molly, and Jennifer all turned down the role. According to Tim Burton, it took a lot of time to convince cast members to sign on to the film, as they thought the script was too weird. Gina Davis was the only cast member who would commit to the project right away. Michael Keaton, Winona Ryder, Catherine O'Hara, and Sylvia Sidney all said no at least once. Producer David Geffen convinced Michael Keaton's manager to convince Keaton to meet with Burton. Once Keaton said yes, Burton personally called Sidney and begged her to do the movie. 
And then he flew out to meet with O'Hara in person to convince her to join on. Originally, Keaton refused the role because, quote, he just didn't get it. Eventually, after meeting Tim Burton, he came around. One of the selling points for him was when he saw Pee-wee's Big Adventure for the first time. As you watch the movie, you're going to notice a few things uh, that are strange, which is the understatement of the century. One of those strange things is Delia's fashion sense. She has a knack for repurposing clothing to wear it in different styles and different ways. In one scene, she wears the red sweater that Charles wore in a previous scene, except instead of wearing it as a sweater, she wears it as pants. During the Dietz's' first dinner in their new house, Delia is seen with an elaborate decorative black hairband wrapped around her head that nearly resembles feathers. This headband is actually a pair of intertwined women's gloves. Very creative indeed. Um, this next uh, little factoid is specifically for Maggie. Maggie, this one's for you because we talked about it while we were watching the movie. The film was set in Connecticut, but the movie was filmed in the small town of East Corinth, Vermont. A small creek which runs through the town was dammed up to provide deeper water for the covered bridge scene, and the covered bridge itself was built on Chicken Farm Road near the village. The Maitland's house was a facade built on a farm field 100 yards uphill from the bridge and was used for exterior shots only. The town post office, the, quote, nice building with a bad roof, is visible from this field. According to producer Larry Wilson, the original ending was significantly darker, ending with Winona Ryder's Lydia dying in a fire and joining her friends in the afterlife. They changed it after considering the message it would send to young people that death would be a happy ending. The skeletal head on the top of Beetlejuice's merry-go-round might look similar, uh, correction, might look familiar to you. It's remarkably similar to that of Jack Skellington, a figure which Tim Burton had been drawing since at least 1982, and would ultimately be used as the main character of The Nightmare Before Christmas in 1993. Although the character's true name is B-E-T-E-L-G-E-U-S-E, it was spelled B-E-E-T-L-E-J-U-I-C-E in the title because, well, it's funnier and it markets better. It's really that simple. <laughs> Although the storyline reason for the, uh, the different spellings is because Beetlejuice wants it to be difficult to pronounce his name so that people don't summon him accidentally. Unsurprisingly, Alec Baldwin dislikes this film very much. He was unhappy with his performance and thought it was beneath him. At one point, Charles Dietz mentions having commissioned a talking Marcel Marceau statue. For those of you not in the mm, for those of you not in the know who may not get that joke, Marcel Marceau was a famous mime, and mimes are notoriously silent. So, a talking statue of a mime would be a silly thing indeed. <laughs> one of my ta- favorite TV shows of all time, an immensely rewatchable and Easter egg filled TV show called Community which started airing over 20 years after the release of Beetlejuice, staged an elaborate but extremely subtle multi-year tribute to the movie. During the first three seasons of the show, a character said the word Beetlejuice once a season, until just after the third season mention, an extra in a Beetlejuice Halloween costume walks by in the background. Which is uh, obviously a very subtle reference to the idea established in the movie that if you say Beetlejuice's name three times, he will appear. And uh, before we close out this segment of the show, we'll give one more piece to my beloved Maggie. Um, 
because we talked about it last night, because you asked, because you suggested this would be good for the show, here it is. Lydia's age in the film is never stated, but Winona Ryder was 17 when the movie was filmed, and Barbara refers to Lydia as a little girl. So it's possible that the character is supposed to be, I don't know, 13 to 16 years old. And now, before we get to the final segment of the show, the wrap-up portion, uh, we're going to end up with episode, uh, correction with addition number two to this week's Schmoop song. This is, of course, Eni Kamozi with Here Comes the Hot Stepper. Hit it! Pick up a 
ladies and gentlemen, that's Here Comes the Hot Stepper, the number two schmoop song of the evening. Thank you, Maggie Schmoops, for suggesting the tunes. Um, all right, ladies and gentlemen, we are at one hour and 47 seconds into this episode of Nonsense the Show, which means it's time to wrap this sucker up. So, while I am uh, digging and digging and digging through the Nonsense Needs playlist... Ooh, found it. For a song to play during our intro segment, or our correction, our outro segment, I want to ask you all for a very, very important, very personal favor. We're headed up to the last episode of uh, season two of Nonsense the Show. 50 episodes in, I'm ready for a break. I'm going to take a couple of months off, come back in the new year, hot, fresh, chock full of new stories, new ideas, new entertainment for you guys on your hourly. Correction, your weekly dose of podcast non-podcast. Uh, oh, Jesus Christ on a bike. Stand by to stand by. Sip of rum for the working man. Mm. I spent all day talking, and as it turns out, doing a show after that can be tough when you get near the end. <laughs> your weekly dose of podcast audio noise. I need you to do me a favor. There are between 20 and 30 of you who listen religiously every single week. I don't know who all of you are. I know a few of you because you write to me. You let me know who you are. I know who a few of you are because you tell me, hey, I listened to the show and I liked it. But I don't know who most of you are. So what I would really like to request from you right now at this time is that prior to next week's episode, whenever you hear this one, I'd like you to take just a minute. Write me an email or a direct message or a text message. Tell me, hi, Captain Nick. My name is so-and-so. I like nonsense. The show. Let me know who's listening. That way I can talk to you directly. I can picture your face while I talk. And what I want you to do is I want you to tell me what has been your favorite part or parts or a standout moment or a moment that you just think, hey, that was pretty good in season two of Nonsense the Show. What do you think I did well in season two of Nonsense the Show? I only ask you because my ego needs just a little tiny bit of stroking when it comes to this show. I haven't experienced the growth I would like, but I'll tell you what, I've had a consistent listener base, and there is a lot to be said for that. I'm incredibly grateful. And now, ladies and gentlemen, at one hour, three minutes into the show, um, I've asked you to send me some thoughts about what your favorite section, uh, your favorite moments in season two were. I've told you about Bloody Mary. I've told you about the Flying Dutchman. I've told you about the Micronation's Tale of the Bear Flag Revolt. I've told you about Captain's Film Institute Film of the Week, number 35, Beetlejuice. There's only one thing left to do before we close out this show and lead into the final episode of season two and a well-earned break for your dedicated broadcast host. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to Nonsense, the show. I appreciate it. Please support me on Patreon. Please leave me a review. Please write me and tell me what you like about the show so I can do more of it next year. Sip a rum for you for supporting me. I appreciate you. I love you. I will see you next week for episode 250. Good night. Captain out.
Okay, let's put an end to this pathetic hoedown.